Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 8.42 a.m. Central Standard Time. It's the 6th of December, 2021. Not very many shopping days left before Christmas hits, bro. This is episode 512 of Bitcoin. And let's start this off talking a little bit about BitcoinTV.com. Yeah, that's right. BitcoinTV.com. What is it? Well, it's a repository of educational video content for the Bitcoin community without distractions like advertising, altcoins, or third-party trackers. The website is operated by Bitcoin TV LLC, moderated by your friend Matt O'Dell, and BitKite. It's hosted by Wiz, that's at Wiz, W-I-Z, OG Bitcoiners all. So where I just kind of like ran across this thing and Matt said has talked about it before. But he just doesn't talk about it enough. So honestly, what is it? Because what I read to you was the about page, which doesn't have a whole lot of information about it, but it's like a YouTube for, for Bitcoiners. And I can, you know, I, I, I can upload videos and I plan to start doing that. Um, except my videos are not going to be as much about Bitcoin as much as, uh, Soil, ranching, farming, plants, nutrition. And I don't mean boring human nutrition. I mean like like soil nutrition. Because I'm just I'm just becoming more and more fascinated with how soil works and uh maybe plant pop you know, plant propagation how to videos and stuff like that. But it's nice because this is kind of a federated deal. It's very if if you know how kind of how Mastodon works, this is kind of like the same thing. I can run I I think unless, you know, Matt may have to correct me, but I think I can run my own instance of bitcointv.com and be a federated node. I'm probably pretty sure I'd have to get uh get set up to do that in a way that I don't know how to do that just yet, but I could. It, that's what it looks like. So, and like, you know, <clears throat> like YouTube, it's got your, you have a library of videos. You can create playlists, you can subscribe to other channels. And w- so what's in a channel, right? You know, what's in the channels right now? Uh, let me get back to uh, my main page. Oh, good Lord. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Let's see here. Uh, yeah. So there's actually quite a few up here so far. There's quite a few channels. Let's look, look Let's look at what channels there is. There's Citadel Dispatch, as you would imagine. That's Matt's Matt's deal. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast, Rabbit Hole Recap, Tech Lore, Bitcoin Magazine has its own channel. Hello Bitcoin, Adopting Bitcoin, Stephen Levera has his channel up here. Samurai Wallet has a channel. 402 Payment Required has a channel. Clearly, Matt O'Dell has himself his own Matt O'Dell channel. Zeus has a channel and many, many more. Meme Factory, one of my favorites, is also up here. And I am on here, but I'm not going to be represented as a channel because I haven't uploaded a video yet. I just, over the weekend, decided that it was time for me to pull the trigger. So I go over to BitcoinTV.com and start looking around for creating an account. And lo and behold... I could not do that. I had to DM Matt O'Dell on Twitter and say, hey, bro, is this like invite only or what? And for right now, it kind of looks like it's going to be moderated fairly heavily, which can you imagine if they didn't, what would happen? You'd have every meth head on the face of the planet opening up some bullshit scam channel. So I'm not, I I have no complaints right now. But Matt got back to me pretty quick. I told him I wanted to do soil and and plants and and stuff like that, you know, some you know, have something a little bit different. 
uh, on here and he got back to me with a an account to that that he set up for me and i am very appreciative of matt odell anyway this is bitcointv.com bitcoin tv all one word just bitcoin t v the letters dot com go check it out because one of the things that i like about this is that it looks really nice it looks nice i it's it i mean it's got a a user experience that just it's intuitive it makes sense i don't really have to you know jack around with it all that much but i did want to make sure that i pointed out that if you get a chance today go to bitcointv.com and check that thing out now now, <clears throat> for the reason that I was not here on Friday, I, I was and I wasn't. I did not do an episode of Bitcoin and on Friday because I was going to be hanging out with a modern T-man, uh, also known as Texas Slim, and our mutual acquaintance up here in the Texas Panhandle, Justin Trammell. He's a, a local rancher and a slash farmer. Um, I'm, I'm still kind of trying to figure out the difference between a rancher and a farmer. The only thing I can figure out is that a rancher has animals and a farmer doesn't. I, I don't know, but that's all confusing. In in either event, <clears throat> Justin raises cattle and I think some chickens and pigs and a few other things. And he is in the middle of trying to get, uh, oh, he's, he's being, well, regulate me harder, daddy, because even in Texas, and we don't need the USDA <clears throat> to be here to approve a slaughterhouse and processing facility that Justin wants to set up, um, he still is having to jump through a ridiculous amount of stupid hoops. Like for instance, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get into uh, what Justin's going through right now as much as to say that if I wanted to set one of these things up, and I go and I dig out who the hell is going to regulate me harder at the state of Texas. And I find out what department that is or whatever. And I give them a phone call and I say, hey, look, I need your specifications of everything that I need to set up a slaughter and processing facility on my land. What do I need? Like, you know, how big does it have to be? Uh, what kind of uh, refrigerators do I need? What temperatures do the, those need to be? I need literally a list from you guys that if I check all the boxes that I'm going to pass my inspection and then I build the fucking thing and then they come out and they inspect it and they said, yep, you've checked all the boxes. Here's your permit. You know, I know, I know, govern me harder, daddy, but it is what it is for right now. Just bear with me. <clears throat> And they give me my permit and my certification and they say, you're off to the races. Go, go and slaughter young man or old man as the case may be. No, this does not exist. What's going on with Justin is basically a travesty of technical communication impotence. It's a nightmare because they, there is no such thing as a specification book or manual or something that you can reference and know for sure that you're going to pass inspection because you did all the things in here. Nothing like that exists. Can you imagine? Can you imagine going to like, for those of you who went to college and probably most of you went to high school, could you imagine walking into like a class and like, you're, like let's say you're uh, 1301 college level freshman English class and the teacher literally gives you no specifications of what's going to happen, I, like i.e. your uh, syllabus. There is no syllabus. They just, she or he just goes, you know what? I'm just gonna start making assignments one by one and I'm not gonna tell you exactly what I want. I'm not gonna tell you how long it has to be. I'm not gonna tell you anything whatsoever and you need to do that. And then I'm going to grade, grade you like, you know, a son of a bitch. Could you imagine? Well, that's what this is. That's exactly what this is. And that's why we fight. That's one of the reasons why I'm hanging out with modern T-Man a lot and uh, really getting into the Texas Beef Initiative and, and trying to bring it to you guys as to why this shit's important. Because in, in my opinion, what I wanna ask these inspectors is, are, were you born in Texas? Because you don't sound very much like a Texan to me. You don't act like a Texan. You don't seem to carry the, you know, the independence that a Texan generally carries around in their heart. So are you a carpetbagger from the Northeast? 
Have you come here to wreck our state and, and basically make sure that nobody can make a living doing something that they truly want to do? Is that, is that being a Texan? No, it is not being a Texan. How to stand up to these people? I don't know. I, I mean, at one point or another, maybe it's just having your own goddamn kill floor and you just start making dog food and label it as such and then just tell the people that you're, you know, selling it to, hey, it says dog food, but it's mighty delicious on the grill. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I don't know. That's how they do it with raw milk up in like New Hampshire, not New Hampshire. Um, I think New Hampshire, I think it's raw milk's legal, but the states around there, they don't, raw milk is not legal. So what are these, what are these guys doing? They're labeling raw milk as pet food and selling it at a farmer's market because that shit's allowed. And you know what's happening? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. The humans are actually consuming the raw milk and not giving it to their pets. Just because you put a label on something doesn't mean that the label represents fully what it is. Anyway, so on Friday night, <clears throat> uh, I recorded uh, with Justin Trammell, our you know rancher friend and modern T-man, a.k.a. Texas Slim, and we went for over an hour and a half talking about soil, regenerative agriculture, the relationship of, of like large ruminant animals and plants and, and how plants have their a completely different kind of relationship with the soil, photosynthesis, water cycles, photosynthates and what those are, and how all this stuff works together. If you have been interested in thing, you know, people like Joel, Untapped Growth and what he's doing, you got to tune in to this because this is sort of like the other... Joel knows a lot of this stuff, okay? But this is sort of not as much, this has nothing to do with what untapped growth is doing insofar as drafting contracts and getting, you know, people who have a lot of money together with people who just want to ranch and, you know, and people who own land and all that shit and getting them together so that they can do all this stuff. This is more about the mechanics of soil and regenerative agriculture and, and why the the technologies that we've lost over the last you know 200 years that were ancient technologies are we now have to not only do we have to rediscover them but we have to re-implement them in the face of tyranny because that's where we're at ladies and gentlemen it's freaking tyranny and one of the people that are at the forefront of the tyranny is also looking at Bitcoin-backed loans. Let's check this out. Goldman Sachs and other Wall Street banks are exploring Bitcoin-backed loans. This is Namsios writing for Bitcoin Magazine. Goldman Sachs and a handful of other Wall Street banks are exploring ways to do institutional cash loans with Bitcoin as collateral, Coindesk has reported. The report cited three people familiar with the plans of a group of tier one U.S. banking institutions interested in the activity. However, most banks would not custody physical Bitcoin to make loans, but instead resort to synthetic products such as futures. Yay, futures. The idea is to emulate tri-party repo agreements, the report said. It is a type of repurchase agreement in which a third-party agent facilitates the transaction between buyer and seller by taking custody of the collateral and ensuring properly proper delivery of cash and the involved assets to each party as per the agreement's terms. Quote, Goldman was working on getting approved for lending against collateral and tri-party repo, one of the people told Coindesk. And if they had a liquidation agent, then they were just doing secured lending without ever having Bitcoin touch their balance sheet, end quote. The second person from a large institutional trading firm shared that while some banks will use a third party to make the loan, others plan to use their own balance sheet. Quote, we've probably spoken to half a dozen big banks about Bitcoin-backed loans, the second person reportedly said. Quote, some of them are in the next three to six months category and some are further out. What's interesting is some of these banks will use their own balance sheet to make the loan. Others will syndicate this out, end quote. According to the report, Coinbase and Fidelity Digital Assets were cited as potential custodians the banks were in discussions with. U.S. banks and savings associations received the green light to custody cryptocurrency for clients last year. 
through a letter published by the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, although questions remained at the time. This year, BNY Mellon and U.S. Bank announced plans for Bitcoin custody services. In October, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or the FDIC, chairman said U.S. regulators were exploring ways for traditional banks to hold Bitcoin. And one month later, the FDIC issued a joint statement with the Federal Reserve and the OCC on the matter, saying the three agencies would provide greater regulatory clarity in 2022 for banking institutions interested in engaging with Bitcoin. So there you go. What does it mean? I don't know, man. I, I have become very disillusioned with this entire futures thing because it's just depressing the price, which is exactly what's been going on with gold. And here I have sympathies for Peter Schiff. I do. I mean, I, I don't I don't actually hate the guy. I think he's actually probably a pretty good dude. I don't think he understands Bitcoin, but that doesn't mean that I'm just going to all out hate his ass. But he's been dealing with the suppression of gold prices through futures contracts for his entire career. At least I, I think pretty much his entire career. Um, and we're, you know, until we get a spot ETF to combat this kind of shit, we're just going to see liquidated longs and, and, and burn up shorts and volatility. And it, and it surprises me that Gensler um, is not allowing a spot Bitcoin ETF under the reasoning that it's not safe. Did you see what happened over the weekend? <laughs> did you, did you, did you see that? Did, because if you weren't watching, we had $10,000 red dildo, all right? So how, again, are the futures a safe bet when it, without a spot to balance that out? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't get it. And apparently there's a couple of lawyers that are talking about, they're actually like writing Gen, uh, Gensler, and I think there's a senator involved that is talking about why they shouldn't actually go to court over this as to why there's not a spot ETF, but all manner of futures and derivatives products are being, being spun out. I think that Gensler is scared that if a spot BT or a spot ETF uh, Bitcoin uh, comes out, then the price is going to run away to the upside. And that's why he won't do it, but we don't know. And we're just going to have to move on. Now here's a ground report, Stephen DeLorme, a hardcore Bitcoiner talks to Salvadorans, and this is out of Bitcoinist, uh, written by Eduardo Prospero. This from the ground report is gold. Stephen DeLorme visited El Salvador and got the information we needed. He talked to real people, experimented with different wallets, went to all kinds of commerces. His story is full of the confusion and angst that is being that being the pioneer carries. El Salvador is going where no country has gone before. Its citizens are in for a ride, but in most cases involuntarily and without enough information. How would they know Bitcoin is the best asset ever created? But first, who's Stephen Delorme? He's a designer and front-end developer working on Bitcoin. He's part of the Bitcoin design community that produced the phenomenal Bitcoin design guide we covered a while ago. Quote, I focus my efforts on crafting UX best practices for Lightning Network applications. I received a grant from Square Crypto so that I would be able to work on this full time, he tells us through his blog. The story begins at El Salvador's airport. He eats at a restaurant there, and we immediately notice that Bitcoin adoption is not as advanced as we thought. Quote, I asked if I could pay with Bitcoin, and they said no, so I opted for credit card. In the government's facilities, they accept Bitcoin. However, other challenges await. In a hotel, they have to call another employee for him to pay in Bitcoin. However, the woman who comes seems to know her stuff. She whipped out a phone with Wallet of Satoshi and took my payment that way. We chatted for a few minutes about Bitcoin adoption in her country. She described herself as very pro-Bitcoin. She said she was nervous when she first heard about it, but once somebody took three minutes to show her how to use a wallet, she was on board with the idea. And then something magical happens. Quote, I asked her how other people in the country felt. She said that she feels the people who are opposed to Bitcoin don't understand it. She also pointed out that there are many people who do not have access to smartphones in the country. I said something like, well, that must be scary for them if they feel like the rest of the country is adopting this new thing without them and being left behind. And she agreed. Have you ever thought about that? 
it must be scary for them. Consider that the next time you hear about an anti-Bitcoin pro uh, protest, he went to a Me Premier Bitcoin meetup and described the group as they are trying to teach people how to use Bitcoin wallets in their daily lives. He also informed us that they're recommending Moon, that's Moon with two U's, to many people for its easy UX. Some people have a difficult time separating their opinions about Bitcoin from their opinions about Naib Bukele. Their wallets could not seem to focus on QR code for the LN invoice from the waiter who used Ibex Mercado. Interestingly enough, their phones could focus on QR codes using other camera apps. By the way, this is like a bullet point list of some of the things that he was noting. <clears throat> The commerces that accepted Bitcoin usually did it through a separate point of sale than all other payments. Quote, a designated person who has a smartphone and is trained to take the BTC payment or perhaps a dedicated POS terminal separate from other POS terminals. Word to the wise. Quote, if you would like to pay with Bitcoin in El Salvador, announce your intention at the beginning of the transaction before the cashier has started punching in your purchases at a point of sale. End quote. This is an insight that clarifies a lot. It explains some of the apprehension Salvadorans have when it comes to Bitcoin. Apparently, when El Salvador adopted the dollar, quote, people were told that colons and dollars would both be maintained as legal tender moving forward. That ended up not being the case. The colon was eventually phased out. For many people who lived in SV, I guess it was uh, in SV, uh, oh, San Salvador? <laughs> During the time period, this brings back bad memories, end quote. Are Salvadorans afraid that this might happen again? They probably are. However, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and that light is Bitcoin. Quote, something that they think Chivo does well, which is show USD and BTC balances side by side. This helps people easily understand that they can hold both dollars and Bitcoin. However, the problems that we showcased in a previous From the Ground report persists. Quote, some have had issues when sending from a non-custodial LN wallet to Chivo. One man describes sending from Blue Wallet to Chivo. His funds are no longer in his wallet, but the Chivo wallet never received the funds. As you can see, Stephen DeLorme is giving us nothing but gold. Come back tomorrow for another dose. This man's story is nowhere near over. So <clears throat> it's not going perfect, and that's fine. Did you think that it would? No, I didn't think that it would. I thought I, I thought pretty much it would that what would happen is exactly what Stephen DeLorme is showing us. There's going to be growing pains. It's going to hurt, and every time it hurts... Every idiot under the sun, including people from Goldman Sachs and Maria Bartiromo and others from CNBC and NBC and CBS and ABC and all the majors and all the miners and all that shit are going to shit all over Bitcoin because it's going to be Bitcoin's fault. Bitcoin has nothing to do with any of it. It's user experience. And with people that are designing user experiences you know, actually giving a shit about how that experience rolls out, well, it's going to get better. But it can't be good out of the box. It never is. <clears throat> I mean, we're what? We're 13 years in, guys. 13 years. We're 13 years old. Do you think a 13-year-old right now could go build a plane and have it fly in the air all the way around the world by telling him that because he knows his multiplication tables, he's good for engineering? No. You still have to learn and learn and learn and learn and learn. And maybe. By the time you're about to retire, you feel like you've learned enough. I don't know, but that's what it's going to be for the people of El Salvador. Now, on to this one. It's time for South Korea to embrace Bitcoin, says KRX chairman. And this is Bitcoin Magazine's Namcios again. It's time to explore ways to embrace Bitcoin and digital assets. Korea Exchange, KRX, chairman Son Byung-do said, according to a report by local outlet Chosen, Byung-Do drew parallels between Bitcoin and the traditional capital markets, calling for investor protection and transaction stability measures. Quote, we need to study ways to embrace virtual assets as know-how in the capital market, Byung-Do reportedly said. The number of domestic cryptocurrency exchanges or exchange users in South Korea has increased despite local financial authorities maintaining a stance that Bitcoin is outside the realm of finance. 
According to the report, there are over 5 million users in domestic Bitcoin exchanges. The daily trading volume of cryptocurrency has also increased and is close to reaching the trading value of South Korea's stock exchange, the KRX. Quote, since virtual assets have become major investment assets, it's time to prepare institutional framework. Now is the time for exchanges to compete directly with overseas exchanges, Byung-Do added. The KRX chairman has noted or noticed the increased investor appetite for Bitcoin exposure in his country and is looking for ways to learn more about and embrace the asset class. Unsatiated thirst can lead to investors looking elsewhere. The Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States has led issuers to move up north by denying numerous applications for spot Bitcoin exchange traded funds. Canada is home to plenty of physical Bitcoin exposure offerings in stock markets and today listed yet another product. By the now or by now, the largest asset manager to offer a Bitcoin ETF is Fidelity. Fidelity Investments resorted to Canadian regulators and markets for listing its spot Bitcoin ETF after seeing its similar filing stall at the SEC's desk since March. The asset manager received regulatory approval last month to launch the first Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada, or IROC, to offer Bitcoin trading and custodian services for institutional investors. And the entity Fidelity Clearing now provides services to the asset manager's ETF offering. So they've got a spot. Canada's got a spot ETF, but no, we don't. But what is nice is that the uh, Korean exchange chairman himself is saying, look, we're going to have to do this. I mean, we've been over, Bitcoin by itself has been over a trillion dollars like three or four times. We're now sitting under that trillion dollar asset class mark, but be that as it may, it's probably going to go up again. Maybe it'll go down before, but this is just the way Bitcoin rolls. All right. So you've got the chairman, the head honcho, the dude, at South Korean exchange, the largest exchange over there saying, we've got to do something about this. And he's not actually saying or trying to figure out a way to kill it. This is probably good for Bitcoin, but we'll have to find out. Now, who's things that are not good for people, and I'm not going to say not good for Bitcoin, but DeFi is not good for people. Why? We Well, $31 million has been drained from MonoX and BadgerDAO and the losses top uh, $120 million. Brian Neuer tells us about it from Cointelegraph. <clears throat> More than $150 million has been lost this week in separate security breaches at DeFi projects MonoX and BadgerDAO. Multi-chain decentralized exchange MonoX suffered a cyber attack on Tuesday, leading to about $31 million in losses. BadgerDAO suffered a front-end attack that was discovered on Thursday with estimates of Badger's losses hitting more than $120 million. The Mono X Dex platform suffered a single attack on Tuesday. In this attack, a bug in the smart contract allowed for a discrepancy to exist between prices of assets when manually changed. Oh my, you could just basically set your own price, I guess. Wrecked News explained that hackers were able to inflate the price of Mono via the smart contract, then buy up other assets from the protocol with Mono. Quote, the hacker created a loop in which the price of token out would overwrite the price of token in, pumping the price of Mono over the course of many swaps. The MonoX team confirmed as much in a Tuesday tweet. In a post-mortem published on Thursday, total losses were confirmed at about $31 million. The team added, quote, Days like yesterday are horrible. There is no sugarcoating the harsh reality of a contract being exploited and people losing money. Our supporters put their faith in a new project like us, and yesterday we let them down. I think you spelled failed them wrong. Anyway, continuing. Mono listed on Huobi only five days before the hack on Mono X. The Badger security breach was an ongoing threat to users interacting with Badger DAO's platform rather than a single large exploit. Discord users began reporting unusual spend requests from a Badger from the Badger platform and alerted admins on social media and on Discord as early as Saturday. Admin BlackBear responded that the request was unusual but likely caused by a benign bug in the front-end user interface. 
The bug in the UI turned out to be the malicious attacker, attacker attempting to steal funds from the user's withdrawal. The same tactic would be used on random users for days or even weeks before it was discovered as a security breach. At time of writing, losses from the Badger attack amounted to over $120 million, including 2,078.76 BTC, 30.27 IB BTC, and 151 Ethereum or ETH. According to blockchain analytics company PeckShield, the Badger team has been investigating the issue and has paused all smart contracts on the protocol to avoid further losses. You know how you avoid further losses? You don't get into this shit. We've been, we've been screaming about this forever and ever and ever, okay? And why is it important? Because in another, in another exchange hack, and this is actually not DeFi, but a straight up exchange, i.e. not your keys, not your coins, hackers take $196 million from crypto exchange BitMart, security firm says. And so here's the key points. Hackers took 196 million from BitMart. BitMart confirmed the hack in an official statement Saturday night, calling it a large scale security breach and writing that the hackers withdrew about $150 million in assets. Blockchain security and data analytics firm PeckShield estimate that the loss is closer to $200 million. So this is, by the way, this is CNBC's McKenzie Segalos, so and we're not gonna read the whole thing because you don't need it. This is an exchange hack like in the days of old. This is just straight up the fact that you handed your keys over to an exchange because you thought you were going to beat the market and guess what? They lost your money. You'll be lucky if you're if you were made whole. But how do you how do you avoid this? You never ever trade Bitcoin. You don't get into DeFi. You don't keep your money on your uh Bitcoin on an exchange. You just don't. Because every time you do this kind of shit happens, and I just don't want it to see it happen to you. Let's run the numbers. CNBC futures and commodities. Uh, looks like natural gas is taking it in the nuts. Uh, I don't know what's going on with natural gas, but it's down to $3.70 per thousand cubic feet, and that is after a 10.3% loss in today's markets. However, West Texas Intermediate up 2.13% to $67.67. Brent North Sea likewise up 2.12% to $71.36. Uh, shiny metal rocks are mixed with gold getting hit, not, not as hard as you'd think, 0.15 to the downside. Uh, that brings us to $1,781 an ounce. Silver, however, getting clobbered one and a half percent points down to, or to the downside, bringing it all the way to $22.10. Platinum is up a quarter. Copper is up three quarters. Palladium is down 1.61%. Agricultural futures likewise mixed. Biggest loser that I can tell is going to be wheat at 1.31% to the downside. Soybean down almost a point. Corn is down 1.16, but sugar, coffee, cotton, and rough rice are all up. Cotton, biggest winner of the day, two and a third percent to the upside. The Dow futures is 1.28% uh, to the upside. S&P futures up almost a half point. NASDAQ futures down more than a half point. And the S&P mini is up one and one quarter. But let's talk about real money at $48,147. Bitcoin had 244,000 transactions committed in the last 24 hours. That's about mm, 10,000 transactions on average per hour with just under 1 million BTC being sent in that 24 hour period. That is about 40,000 BTC being sent every hour on the hour with an average transaction value of 3.87 BTC and a median transaction value of 0.013 BTC or $639. Block times are pretty low, uh, nine minutes and four seconds. Zero or yeah, 0.08 percent. Let's try this again. 0.08 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis and 12 and three quarters BTC being taken in fees overall in the last 24 hour period. And with a 1.76% uh, jump in hash rate, we are at 179 point. 
two exahashes per second. That may be an all-time high. I'm not sure. Although, I, if I'm remembering right, I'm thinking it's 186. So we may still be underneath that, but getting close to being back to where we were. Uh, your shitcoin indicator is Dogecoin at 16.6 United States pennies. Wow. That, that Doge got freaking hammered AF, dude. 3,000 transactions are waiting on two blocks to clear. As I said at the beginning of the show, we are under $1 trillion. We are now at a $921.6 billion market cap, which is 7.89% uh, of gold's total market cap. And we may now only purchase 27.4 ounces of shiny metal rock with our one Bitcoin, of which there are 18,892,972.75 of 3,270 and a half of those BTC are locked up in the Lightning Network, which now has a capacity value of $159.5 million, being run over 18,500 nodes, representing 81,300 total payment channels, and 74.9% of all of this is being run over Tor. So 2,449 BTC are being handled on the Tor Network, being supported by 11,279 Tor nodes that we know about, and that's gonna do it for Vitals. Welcome to part two of the news that you can use. Ethereum's difficulty bomb is now delayed again. Who'd have thunk it, huh? Ethereum's Arrow Glacier upgrade delays difficulty bomb until June 2022. This is Crypto Slate and, uh, and, uh, and Hela Radmilak is actually writing this one. Ethereum is set to undergo a scheduled upgrade at block number 13,773,000, which should take place around December the 8th. The Arrow Glacier Network upgrade will delay the difficulty bomb until June 2022, which is when developers believe Ethereum will be running on proof of stake. According to Tim Bico, the chair of all core developers at the Ethereum Foundation, pushing back the Ice Age slash difficulty bomb has also been done in Byzantium, Constantinople, and London network upgrades. The EIP 4345 difficulty bomb was scheduled to go off in December of 2021 and exponentially raise the difficulty level for miners on the network. However, as the difficulty bomb only affects proof-of-work networks, it was decided to delay the bomb on the mainnet and run the proof-of-stake transition on the Ropsten net uh, test network. No other changes other than EIP 4345 have been included in the upgrade. The change will delay the difficulty bomb until June 2022, when developers hope the current Ethereum mainnet will merge with Beacon Chain, marking the end of the proof-of-work Ethereum. However, if the merge isn't ready by June 2022, EIP 4345 will be delayed even further. In order to be compatible with the Arrow Glacier upgrade, node operators will need to update the client version they run to the latest versions listed in the blog post. Ethereum users will centralize, oh, well, sorry, Ethereum users with centralized exchanges and web wallet services aren't required to make any changes ahead of the upgrade, but might need uh, to take some additional steps in the future if their service provider requires them to. Oh, joy. So, What's to note about this? There's two things. Uh, one is they're going to delay this shit again. This has been going on forever. The difficulty bomb has been delayed forever. And it said it was scheduled to go off in December 2021. I, if I remember correctly, that difficulty bomb that was supposed to go off in December of 2021, was uh, that date was set by other previous difficulty bomb delay network upgrades. And the other thing to note is that the only thing that is in this upgrade is the difficulty bomb adjustment delay. That's it. There's nothing else in this thing. Nothing else, not, not anything else. There's no bug fixes. There's no nothing. It's just like an, oh my God, we've got to delay this shit for the umpteenth time. And people still think that, that 
Ethereum is going to just migrate to proof of stake and is going to kill Bitcoin. I don't think so, man. I, I just don't. Meanwhile, Bitcoin marches on. Mercado Libre plans to accept BTC and shitcoins as payments for all products. Ornella Hernandez has it from Cointelegraph. Mercado Pago, the fintech arm of e-commerce giant Mercado Libre, has enabled its Brazilian customers to buy, sell, and hold Bitcoin and one other shitcoin and the Paxos-issued U.S. dollar-backed stablecoin Pax Dollar. In a statement issued on Thursday by U.S.-based Paxos, the blockchain infrastructure platform used by PayPal and Facebook, the partnership between Mercado Pago and Paxos will allow users to pay for all products sold on the platform using the cryptocurrencies. This news signals one of the largest stablecoin operations within a non-crypto wallet to date. Brazilian users looking to hold U.S. dollars can now do so for as little as one Brazilian real within the Mercado Pago app by purchasing USDP. In inflation-plagued Latin America, stablecoins can provide a safety net against fiat monetary debasement. And starting with Brazil, Mercado Libre's largest market, the collaboration with Paxos plans to accelerate the democratization of financial services in LATAM. As Mercado Pago hopes to make crypto more easily accessible for all Brazilians, Paxos plans to safeguard customer assets. Since Mercado Pago is authorized by Brazil's central bank to act as a payment institution, the overall operation and integration of the platforms will be done by Paxos, which has opened an office in Brazil and will handle reporting users' transactions to the regulators, according to Tulio Oliveira, vice president of Mercado Pago Brazil. Mercado Libre has been serving unbanked and underbanked populations since 1999. Now, Mercado Pago and Paxos are among the few companies trying to normalize connectivity and mainstream use cases of stablecoin. Reserve is another platform that serves to convert local, local currencies in Venezuela, Colombia, Argentina, and Panama to U.S. dollar using the Reserve RSV stablecoin. So yeah, Bitcoin is marching on. Mercado Libre is huge and it is happening. I just want one more Latin American country to experiment with making Bitcoin legal tender without the coercive nature of what, quote, legal tender, end quote, actually means, as in forced to take it. I want to see one other Latin American country just say, you can use Bitcoin if you want. We're going to provide you the education and you can take it if you want. We're going to provide you a wallet and you can use it or you don't have to use it. But we are not going to stand in your way as a customer, your way as a citizen, your way as a retailer, your way as somebody who's at the corporate level. You are not going to stand in the way of you using Bitcoin for your everyday needs if you choose. That's all I want. If Guatemala did that or... Uh, Honduras or, 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 or actually I would like to see Argentina do it, but whatever. If one country did it that way and we'd have a, an AB test of El Salvador that's basically kind of forcing the usage of Bitcoin and I don't like it. And then the, you know, the B switch that actually is a test of we're just going to make it legal you don't have to worry about it. You can pay your taxes in it. You know, the government will accept it but you don't have to as private citizenry. Just do that. I would love to see it, see where uh, Bitcoin went after that. Now, examining the Lindy effect and Bitcoin. This is by Dawn from Bitcoin Magazine. As Bitcoin quickly approaches its teenage years, it's time to dig into why the fact that it has survived this long makes it incredibly likely that it will continue to survive and thrive long into the future. Wikipedia states, the Lindy effect, also known as Lindy's law, is a theorized phenomenon by which the future life expectancy of some non-perishable things like a technology or an idea is proportional to their current age. Thus, the Lindy effect proposes that the longer a period something has survived to exist or be used in the present, it is also likely to have a longer remaining life expectancy. Longevity implies a resistance to change obsolescence or competition, and greater odds of continued existence into the future. At the core of the Lindy effect is human nature. As humans, we trust things more the longer they have existed. For example, most people thought that the Wright brothers 
were insane when they built and flew the first airplanes in the early 1900s. Today, we take air travel for granted. The same phenomenon applies to mobile phones, computers, and Bitcoin. Now that we have a fundamental understanding of the Flindy effect, let's examine how it relates to Bitcoin. The first Bitcoin block was added to the blockchain on January the 3rd, 2009. So we can calculate that Bitcoin has been in existence for 12, almost 13 years. With the understanding that the Lindy effect states that the longer a period something has survived to exist or be used in the present, it is also likely to have a longer remaining life expectancy, we can then ask ourselves, has Bitcoin crossed the Rubicon as it relates to the Lindy effect? To answer that question, we examine the following topics. Bitcoin's mining growth rate, Bitcoin's user growth rate, and Bitcoin's resistance to change and competition. The Bitcoin network is secured by its proof-of-work mining system. The total network security is equal to the amount of hash rate produced by miners. The below graphic shows the Bitcoin network hash rate since inception, and as we can see, the hash rate has increased exponentially throughout Bitcoin's 12-year life. The dip in 2020 was due to China banning Bitcoin mining. Yeah, yeah. In addition to the Bitcoin network hash rate security increasing over time, the distribution of mining is also increasing. Early in Bitcoin's life, the majority of hash rate was consolidated among a small number of players in a small number of countries. Today, thousands of miners all around the world contribute to Bitcoin's hash rate, and thus the security of the network is becoming more robust over time. Additionally, large institutions and even countries such as El Salvador are entering the Bitcoin mining space. It's safe to say that the Bitcoin mining network will continue growing ever more secure for the foreseeable future. The growth rate of a technology is tied to its ability to achieve network effects. From Wikipedia, quote, a network effect is the phenomenon by which the value or utility a user derives from a good or service depends on the number of users of compatible products. Network effects are typically positive, resulting in a given user deriving more value from a product as other users join the same network, end quote. To demonstrate the power of network effects, let's examine Facebook. From its inception in 2004 to today, Facebook has grown from zero users all the way to nearly 3 billion users worldwide. Imagine being one of the first few Facebook users. You could only interact with the other few users on the network. Thus, the value was low. Contrast that with today, where users have the ability to instantly connect with 3 billion other users all over the world, and we can see the enormous value that network effect provides. Now let's examine Bitcoin's user growth rate or wallet addresses in order to determine if it has achieved a strong network effect. The below graphic shows Bitcoin wallet addresses growth since inception. As we can see, the number of users joining the Bitcoin network has increased at an exponential rate. The estimated number of users topped 100 million earlier this year. It's safe to say that Bitcoin has achieved impressive network effects in its first 12 years. Bitcoin is resistant to change. It is. Critics of Bitcoin point to this as a flaw. However, it is actually a very important feature. In order to change the Bitcoin network consensus rules, the majority of users running the protocol software must agree to the update. The fact that Bitcoin is decentralized and millions of people around the world run versions of the software on their own computers, it is very difficult to achieve consensus. Thus, only updates that the overwhelming majority of network participants agree upon make it into the Bitcoin code. Bitcoin takes the opposite approach of the Mark Zuckerberg-inspired Silicon Valley ethos of move fast and break things, which, if you ask me, is a prudent strategy for the future of monetary networks of the world. Bitcoin is also resistant to competition. There are many thousands of competing shitcoins. He doesn't say that, I do, but whatever. New cryptocurrencies are created literally every day, so how is that, how is it that Bitcoin is still the overwhelmingly dominant cryptocurrency? Because when you combine its security, growth, user growth, and perfect monetary policy, it becomes clear that Bitcoin has achieved something that no other cryptocurrency has or likely ever will. Bitcoin has survived and thrived despite its competitors, most of which have already failed or on their way to failing. Now let's return to the question we set out to answer. Has Bitcoin crossed the Rubicon as it relates to the Lindy effect? 
We can see clearly now that the Lindy effect applies to Bitcoin as the amount of time that the, net, the Bitcoin network has existed and grown, the security of the network or hash rate and number of users of the network has also grown. Not only have hash rate and number of users grown, but they have grown at an exponential rate. This combination of network effects and the Lindy effect explain Bitcoin's dominance amongst competing cryptocurrency. In conclusion, the Lindy effect is an important phenomenon to understand. Simply put, the longer something has survived, the longer it is likely to exist into the future. Bitcoin has survived for almost 13 years. During that time, it has developed strong network effects, which will help it continue to survive and thrive into the future. As time goes on, we will continue to see Bitcoin's security or hash rate increase, its user growth increase, and its competitors fail. An ever-increasing number of individuals, institutions, and nation-states will join the Bitcoin network, strengthening its network effect and increasing the strength of the Lindy effect. Grab a seat. It's going to be an amazing ride. Yeah, we shouldn't forget about the uh, potency of the Lindy effect, and that was a very good synopsis of what it is and where we are in Bitcoin's history as it relates to the Lindy effect. And I mean, his conclusion, I, it's not that I don't disagree with it. It's just that is 13 years enough is, I mean, because nobody can really put a, a like, well, any good or service past this point is going to survive. We don't know because it's going to be, it depends on the good or service. So is 13 years enough? That's only a question you can answer for yourself. But his discussion about hash rate is uh, very, you know, user growth, but especially hash rate and especially its bounce back to previous levels post the China shooting themselves in the foot syndrome. So proof of work. Let's talk about that further. In this piece by Bitcoin Magazine, and who's writing this one? Oh, come on, show me the, the oh, Mark Mari, Ma, uh, Maria, Maria, yeah, Maria. How proof of work is useful beyond Bitcoin. Oh, anyone who has studied Bitcoin for a while knows that proof of work in Bitcoin mining is the key to the security and to the unforgeable nature of the protocol. Bitcoin mining in 2021 requires that miners use purpose-built computers called ASICs to convert real-world energy into encrypted digital monetary energy. By using this proof of work and following consensus rules, Bitcoin miners secure this decentralized network one block at a time approximately every 10 minutes. Some have even called it triple entry bookkeeping. <clears throat> and the system is designed to work in a way that makes forgery, hacking, theft, cheating, or double spending coins all but impossible. One metaphor that is used to describe this is adding a block to the Bitcoin time chain, like adding a floor to a skyscraper. To fully understand how this works is far beyond the scope of this article, but the key design of the system requires the use of real world energy so you can't cheat or game the system. By contrast, Jay Powell at the Federal Reserve Board can increase the U.S. money supply by the trillions with a few simple keystrokes. I've served as a business relationship coach for over 30 years. To clients, this meant I was an executive coach, their business development coach, their leadership coach, their time management coach, or their performance coach. One of my dearest friends and colleagues, David Lerner, taught me an idea from his coach training that he called completing a unit of work. His unit of work in coaching is similar to proof of work in Bitcoin mining. The idea as a coach or a leader charged with getting stuff done through others is to complete at least one unit of work with the client or direct report during every meeting. Too often I see leaders and organizations fail to make their conversations with employees a unit of work or a conversation for action. In the old days, we'd hear the expression, there is no such thing as a free lunch. In my business model, that meant the client would learn and apply at least one concept or be willing to experiment with one new action, approach, or skill on every call. And we'd follow up on how it worked in the next call, rinse and repeat. When clients complete at least one unit of work during every meeting or call during a three to six month stretch, they are amazed at how much their performance improves. Sometimes this involved clients getting over self-limiting beliefs that held back their performance and other times it involved learning how to effectively delegate work that was better handled by another person in their organization. In all cases, the focus was on deepening the relationship my client had with one or more people. Unlike most people in the business world, I tend to see an organization through a relationship lens, not just a financial lens. 
At its core, every organization is no more or less than the relationships it cultivates within and outside. Strengthen, and relate, strengthen the relationship and communications between the CEO and the chief financial officer, and the numbers will almost always work out well. In the past three decades, I've held over 20,000 meetings and phone calls with clients where completing at least one unit of work was my proof of work. I've never added up data on it. I have notes of almost every call and meeting, but it was the rare call or meeting that didn't end with the client agreeing to at least one action step. That meant we had proof of work. The action step could be an awareness exercise as simple as keep track of how many times you said yes when you wanted to say no. Or the action step might be as specific as I will call Charlene as soon as we end this call and invite her to speak at our next conference or practice group meeting. What I've learned from these cumulative experiences in my study of Bitcoin mining is that it pays handsome dividends for any organization to have a proof of work system. Your performance and that of your peers and colleagues will transform when you operate with a proof of work system. For example, those in construction can visibly see the progress they make every day. I worked as a carpenter during summers between college and law school and our daily progress was always visible. <clears throat> Admittedly, Determining proof of work in an office or service business is more difficult and requires thought. And one way to learn how a client defined proof of work was to ask them this question at the start of our work together. Quote, what will success look like from our work together? End quote. Sometimes their answers were vague and other times they were very detailed and insightful. Often we develop a set of metrics based on those answers, which gave them a way to keep score on a daily or weekly basis. Hitting those metrics was their proof of work. For example, if you were aiming to expand your network of high net worth people, your metric might be to add one new high net worth person to your network each week. There is no one size fits all way of determining proof of work, but Bitcoin raises the bar on what's possible. This entire industry is filled with people who get stuff done. Instead of thinking that only Bitcoin miners or world-class athletes need to do proof of work, ask yourself how you might gauge proof of work in your company. What does proof of work look like in your company? If you have one you're willing to share with Bitcoin Magazine, please reach out. We'd love to hear from you. And that was a guest post by Mark Mariara, I guess is how you pronounce it. It's, it's, a, it's a bizarre word. Anyway, that was good. I enjoyed that. How, you know, how can I take any of that and apply it to, you know, what I'm going to do today? What's my proof of work? Well, about an hour long podcast, almost every day of every week. And I've been doing it for coming on for, uh, well, probably three and a half years. Three and a half years, 512 episodes when this one drops. That's my proof of work. And I still feel that it's not enough. So I've got to, I've got to add some other stuff to my proof of work. Uh, and I may start doing that with recording videos about what I'm doing on my small property, i.e. my backyard and front yard, and dropping it on BitcoinTV.com and possibly YouTube and see if I can start another cycle of proof of work. That's going to do it for the morning roundup. All right. I got a couple of jokes for you. Uh, the first one, let's just do the first one because it's easy and you'll, you'll understand what, what I mean by the fact that reading a joke isn't always easy. Um, let's do this one. Someone threw a giant bottle of omega-3 pills at me. I'm fine. Only suffered superficial oil injuries. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm saving the sound effect. That's a good one. That's a really good one. And, and why is it easy to read? And by the way, this is from Mariana057. <clears throat> because it's just one line. Now we got something here that I, I, I retweeted this entire thing. It is a quote tweet. And it ends up being a, a, a dad joke, and I'm not quite sure how to run this, right? Because it's like, I've got to read something from the, the quoted tweet, and then I've got to read from the actual quote tweet itself. And it's, it's a little odd. So bear with me. I may completely fail on this aspect, but it's worth a try. Okay, it's worth a try. We got to get some, some, some good, different 
you know, and, and more better dad joke architecture going on here. So Elon Musk says, my car is currently orbiting Mars. Jonathan writes back, well, no, it's orbiting the sun and occasionally passes the orbit of Mars. It's not the same thing. So uh, Alonzo writes back and says, well, who died and made you the orbital police? Jonathan replies, Johannes Kepler. Well, Katie Mack synthesizes the whole thing and says, this is what's known to space scientists as orbital burn. See, it's hard to do, it's hard to do this. I mean, it, it really is. But it, there's, a, there's a good solid dad joke in there somewhere. It just needs to be refined. And in this particular way, it's, it's just, it's kludgy, it's clunky. It's not something that you can do in one line, but this is what's known to space and uh, scientists as an orbital burn is a great punchline for a dad joke. So, you, you know, try to figure it out. If you're interested in dad jokes and you like them, help me help myself get this packaged into an actual dad joke format and we'll move on from there and I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.